Hey guys, it's Pastor Kent, and as we get started, I want to have a couple of, uh, I don't know, caveats to the, today's episode, and what I want to say is that we're talking about the economy, but I'm not giving you personal financial advice. Please do not take it that way. Go see a professional financial advisor, okay? I have a hard enough time running my own finances. I don't want to run yours too. The second thing is that I'm going to be using layman's terms to try to make it understandable to the regular guy. There is a whole vernacular that goes amongst people who do this professionally. I'm not a professional economist, but I do read about a lot of them. And if I can put a pitch in, we're going to have a guy that's on Fox Business almost every single day who comes to our church when he's on the West Coast, and he'll be speaking, and he'll be talking about his new book. It's an excellent book. He gave me a pre-printed copy, and uh, it talks about economics and economic theory, and where does work fit into the whole picture? That's going to be cool, too. And then third, I wanted to say that as we go through this, it's going to be a multi-part series because there's really no, no part of your life that isn't impacted by what's going on in the economy, and we're going to talk about why that is. So please join us, have your thinking cap on, and don't take this as financial advice. Hey guys, Pastor Kent here again. I'm excited to be with you today because we're going to be kind of going into a little three-part little series, maybe more. We'll see. I never am able to guess the number of parts to any series that I'm involved in. But I thought I'd talk about this issue of the economy. And the reason that I want to do that is because a number of our staff members have talked to me about it because it seems like there's a lot of concern in our uh, culture, in terms of the mindset of the culture, about the well-being of the economy and the way and direction that the country is moving. And if you look at these different di polls you'll see in culture, you'll see that most of the people do not like the direction that the country is going. I think it's less than 30% of the, of the population think that the country is right, going in the right direction. And a big part of that is about the economy. And there's a lot of confusion about the economy. And I'm not an economist, but I like studying it. And I subscribe to a number of newsletters from hedge funds. And I like reading different books on the economy and trying to stay up on it, because I think part of a pastor's role is to understand economic issues. And when you talk about economic issues, the most important thing is, what do you mean by economy? What is economics? And economics is simply a system for determining how scarce resources are going to be allocated. And it's as simple as that. We'll get more into it maybe in another one of our talks in this little mini-series. But what I want to talk about is what's happening right now in terms of the economy in the United States, and why is this creating a lot of anxiety in the culture as people are concerned. And if you've been aware, there's been a lot of inflation of late, and quite a bit, in fact. In order to deal with that, our federal government, through what is known as the Fed, uh, which is the basically the national bank, I'm trying to use non-technical terms, uh, sets the interest rate in order to try to slow down the inflation. And uh, what's happening right now is when economy is not doing well, and the economy was damaged significantly with the shutdown by COVID. And what that did is it stopped all of the different supply chains that go throughout the country because everything shut down. The country is not producing anything. And as a result of that, there's fewer and fewer goods available with a lot of money in the system chasing those goods. And as a result, that drives the price up. And that's part of what has caused this inflationary spiral that we're in and also this kind of lagging economy that we're experiencing. And so the other part that came 
became of that is when the new president came in, the first thing he did is he cut the oil contracts so that there would be less oil production in the United States because he is, has said very clearly he was going to do that, and he followed through on what he had promised during his campaign. And what that does is it drives up the, pro the price of oil. And so when you're looking at the economy and seeing prices inflate, when oil goes up, that means everything that transports people, goods, and services goes up because it's more costly to enable those things to be distributed. In other words, if you pay $5 a day to go to work and back in gas, and the gas is now doubled, you're paying 10 that means you it is more expensive for you to go to work and back. And the same thing is true if you're an Amazon driver and delivery guy and the, or a guy that drives around a tanker truck or another guy that is hauling stuff across the country or flying things, like FedEx, et cetera. So these things all contribute to a more expensive economy. And when you put those two things together, the increase in the cost of fuel together with the cutback on the productions of goods and services because of COVID, and then third, in order to help people get through that, they printed a bunch of money or distributed a bunch of money to comp compensate people who weren't working as a result of COVID, and that got pushed into the system as well. And when you add that into the system, there's a lot of money chasing fewer goods, and that's what we've been experiencing. And so the debate amongst economists, and I'm using very general terms so that you hopefully can understand it, is that they're trying to say, how do we re up our supply chains? How do we get them going again? And they're working on that. And how do we take some of the excess cash that's floating around in the system out of the system? And so what they do is raise interest rates, which makes it more difficult to get additional cash. And that slowly brings the money out of the system. These are very general layman's terms. It's far more complicated than that. But that's why you're seeing interest rates go up. They're intentionally trying to raise them, and they've been doing that. And then they measure how effective it is in slowing down the inflation. And they have a couple of, member, uh, a couple of uh, measurements that they use. One's called the PPI, which is the Producer Price Index. Obviously, it's self-descriptive. Whoever produces something, they do it for a price. And this is an index of the average of all these different produced items. And the other is called the CPI, the Consumer Price Index. And that means what you pay for, what you consume. And the PPI always is in front of the CPI because when the producer has to produce it for a greater cost, then that's passed on to the consumer and it's reflected in the consumer price index. I hope I haven't lost you yet, but this is kind of the big picture. Now there's a debate on how, uh, how, much, uh, how much choking down of the economy, the raising of the interest rates is causing. How much is it costing us? How many jobs are lost because of it? Is this inhibiting people for, to go from going back to work? Things like that. That's the big question. And so people who watch the market, because markets are advanced indicators of the health of the economy. In fact, there's three ways of looking at it. So that's not technically accurate, but here's the general rule of thumb. You've ever heard of the Dow Jones Industrial Average? That's 30 of these big companies that have been around for a long time. And the price of those are added up, and that gives you the index price. And so when they say the Dow is at such and such a number, that's when you add up those 30 companies. And they are basically an indicator of the industrial health of America. 
And that's why people watch it closely. The other one is called the S&P 500. And the S&P 500 takes 500 of the most uh, profitable companies in the United States, adds them all up, and creates an index based on that. And it's a weighted index. Some, certain companies get more points or attributed to them than others, and, but that's what it is. And every professional money person looks at the S&P 500 first thing every day and last thing before they go home. That is the most important indicator. But then there's, and it has 500 of the most successful companies. And if your company's not successful after a while, they kick you out and put somebody else in. And so that it's constantly with the best of the best. And then you have another one known as the NASDAQ, and that is the technology stocks. And those are the stocks like Google and Microsoft and Apple and Amazon and Meta, known as Facebook and Tesla and companies like that, okay? They have a hundred of them. The NASDAQ 100 is what it is called. And those are all tech stocks. And the general rule of thumb is that those monitor the technological health and well-being of the country as well. So one is the basic consumers, which is the Dow. Then you have the NASDAQ, which is technology. Then you have a third one. We've already talked about the S&P, so this would be the fourth one we talk about it. The third one is called the Russell Small Cap or Small Company Index. And they take 1,000 or 2,000 of the small, healthy companies in the country, and they once again you know, come up with a way of what their value is, and they chart it out and all that, just like they do, other, do the other indexes. And here's the rule of thumb. You look at the small caps, and that tells you where the economy is today. You look at the technology companies, that tells you where the com economy is going to be in 6 to 12 months out. And that is the NASDAQ. You look at the Dow to see what is the present health of the economy. In other words, how, is, how are these big corporations that employ lots of people, how are they doing? How, how are they producing? What does it look like, the general internal health of the economy? And then the, the S&P 500 includes stocks from 500 of the biggest companies, and that one is an indicator of how the country should be doing in about six months out. Now, here's the crazy thing that has everybody confused right now, and that is that the 500 companies of the S&P 500, the one that everyone looks to is this is the most accurate and reliable indicator. And by the way, the number at, at the closing of every day, which is at 4, 4 o'clock p.m. On the, west, on the East Coast, that's a snapshot of the day. That's a snapshot of how the economy is doing today. Just That's all it is. Tomorrow it's going to change, and it changes all the time. But here's the problem. Of those 500 companies, only seven of them are moving the index up. In other words, you have a very narrow slice of the 500 most impressive companies in the country driving the entire index. So the question is, is this an accurate indicator of how we're doing now, or is that, as some people say, they shoot the generals last. In other words, these are the last guys standing because they're still making money, but eventually they're going to stop making money, and then things are going to get really ugly. And so that's what has everybody confused. Or are they the canary in the coal mine in a good way? 
that these seven are still strong because they're sniffing that things are going to get a whole lot better going forward into the future. And so now you have what is known as a market, people who want to sell their stock and people who want to acquire more stock. And as a result of that, nobody is really sure about where we're headed going forward. And so people look at other indicators. They look at commodities. If the price of food is going up on the wholesale level, then it's going to impact the retail. And if you're spending more money on food, then you're not going to have more money to spend on other things. And therefore, those sectors of the economy are going to suffer. And if you happen to be employed in those sectors, then probably your job would be at risk. And that's how they look at it. So uh, if you want to augment your understanding of how the economy is working, you would want to look at commodities. And commodities include the price of oil. And the price of oil affects everything, as I've already mentioned, because everything is transported with fuel, fossil fuels primarily. And as a result of that, that determines the price of goods and services and your access to them. Well, what has happened in this downturn that we saw last year and this is one of the schools of thought, was that we have already seen the bottom of the business cycle last year when the NASDAQ, remember the high tech, went down about 20%. Now today, as I'm sharing this, we are basically within 1% of its all-time high. In other words, it's come back. But it's being driven by this short handful of stocks uh, that has everybody going, hmm, this doesn't feel healthy if only a very small sliver of these hundred companies in the NASDAQ, these seven, are doing great and everybody else is kind of suffering. Uh, and so that, that's kind of the big debate that's going on right now. They, they don't know if this is going to be sustainable. But anyways, if you look at, if you look at oil, it bottomed out. And now it's starting to slowly come back. And that is a precursor then that perhaps the economy is getting stronger because there's a higher demand for fuel, which drives the production and the delivery of goods and services. And we're seeing that happen. We're also seeing that the cost of food commodities, those kinds of commodities, are starting to go down. They're in a deflationary uh, spiral. And in fact, if you see how they say what is the price of a Thanksgiving dinner and they track that every year, well, in 2021, 2021, I think it was $61 for a Thanksgiving meal. In 2022, it was $66. And in 2023, it was $62. So it went back down. So there seems to be an internal uh, reduction of inflation in the commodities area, in other words, food staples. And as a result of that, people think that as a result of the Fed's, Fed's tightening, in other words, raising interest rates, they've slowed the economy down enough and uh, took enough money out of the system that its inflationary potential is slowing and that they ought not to raise rates anymore. So there's a big debate happening right now. Is the economy now slowing enough on its own, that if the Fed does nothing, it'll get healthier and healthier? Or do we have to go back and raise the rates again in order to slow down what we see as the general inflation in, in, the, in the culture? And that's a big debate amongst them, and they're going both ways. And there's a third problem now that we have to bring into the equation. Part of the 
budget battle that you see going on in Congress and the Senate and all that you're hearing about it is about how much we want to raise the spending of the federal government. Because if the federal government is spending money, then they're putting more money into the system. That means that has an inflationary impact. And the big battle is, can we afford to do this? Number one, we know that we're going to have a shortfall this year of about $2 trillion in a $30 trillion economy. And so how do you, how do you pay for the $2 trillion? Where does that money come from? There's only two ways that you can take care of it. You can either grow the economy to such a large extent that you create greater tax revenues to cover that, which is highly unlikely, or because of the, there's reasons for that, and the main reason is because we have a high level of employment. It's less than uh, 3.5% unemployed, which means what? It means that you don't have a lot more uh, space to grow the economy. Almost everybody's being utilized now. And so it's going to be hard to grow the economy that substantially in such a short period of time. That's, that's kind of the downside of that. So the other side, you can raise taxes. And so with the, you know, the past budget they've went, they decided to hire, I think, 80,000, 85,000 new IRS agents so that they can uh, collect more taxes. That's the idea. Because the, the Congress doesn't like to officially raise taxes as a policy. They would rather try to collect them by becoming more scrupulous on everyone's tax filing. And so that's kind of what that's all about. Or the third way is to cut the budget. And that's the debate. If we cut the budget, then we don't have to spend the money. If we don't have to spend the money, we don't have to collect the taxes, and we can allow the economy to take a natural growth forward. So the whole battle going on between the Senate and the White House and the Congress is about can we stop the rate of the growth of the economy through the spending of the government? Because that has the greatest negative impact because there's no way to pay for it. It's, there's, if you don't have the receipts, you don't have the receipts. And because the Fed has raised the interest rate to about 5%, that's the kind of the rule of thumb, to 5%, five and a quarter, it's in that range. Anyways, they've raised it then all the money they borrowed to pay for the public debt, in other words, for the military, for Social Security, for Medicare, all that spending that they've done, they have to pay interest on that borrowed money. And that interest is in the form of bondholders. In other words, you loan the federal government your money when you buy a bond, and it pays you 5%. In fact, at church, we did that just about 30 days ago, 60 days ago, because that's a nice chunk, and it's low risk. And so when you do that, the government has to pay it back. And there, since the United States hasn't gone bankrupt in its history, it seems to be a pretty good bet. And anyways, uh, when the bonds are going up, the government has to pay out all the interest, that 5%. Well, here's the problem we're running into. If Congress spends more money than you have, they have to borrow money from the people by selling them bonds. And one of the biggest bond sellers of American debt has been China, who isn't getting along with us very well. And so 
the only way you can get the Chinese or the Japanese or the Germans or the French or the British or American citizens to buy these bonds is to raise the interest rate because then they become more valuable. And as a result of that, with the interest rate, if it goes up, people want to acquire them. You still have to pay it back. And here's the problem we're into now. We have, we will be spending more money on the payment of the interest rate on the bonds than we do on our biggest single budget item, namely the military. It will be $1 trillion in bond repayment next year. And, oh boy, this is terrifying. We have in the last hundred days, because of the interest rate, had to pay an additional $2.3 trillion in interest. That is a huge amount. That amounts to an expansion of our debt. So uh, of about 7%, if you did the numbers. Uh, I did them this afternoon. These numbers are terrifying because eventually you're going to have to raise taxes. And when you raise taxes, if you raise taxes too much here, even at our church, then we would have to probably let some people go because you, you, you have to have a positive cash flow as a business. So every business looks, okay, you raise the minimum wage and you raise taxes. That means I'm going to have to do more with less employees. I'm going to have to let some people go. So now those people are collecting unemployment insurance. Instead of being a contributor, they become a drag. And you see how this gets into a very ugly negative spiral. And these are all the things that are at play and why the entire uh, economic uh, cohort in America is debating back and forth whether we're coming out of a recession that we dipped into or whether we're headed for a monster recession coming forward in this next year. Uh, I'm Like I said, I'm not an expert, but it seems to me, oh, there is a third way to pay it all off. And the third way of paying it all off, I forgot to mention, it's very important, you print more money. You inflate your way out of it. So you put more money into the system, and then you just pay it off. That's what we did in the 2008-2009 crisis. We just printed a bunch of money, paid everybody off, and didn't worry about it, moved forward. And so we're kind of suffering the consequences of it now. Just think about 2008. How much did a new car cost, a solid new car, let's say an Explorer or something like that? It's like $25,000, $24,000, $23,000. Today, they're $50,000. So the value of your money has gone in half because they printed so much. And the same thing, if you bought a house in 2004, you probably paid a normal house in 2004 would probably be, my estimate, probably $300,000. Now, a house in, in our area, you're approaching a million dollars. It's at least six. I, I, I don't even know of a house for $600,000 in this area. So if you're going from three fifty, you're going to seven hundred, eight hundred, nine hundred, a million dollars. Because why? Your money is worth less because it's more in circulation because they printed more money. And I don't want to get into all the mechanics of how they do that, but it's it's a it's a way that they're able to uh, basically dilute the debt and so that it's payable. But that also creates all of this inflation. And so there's no easy way out, and that's why there's all this debate going on. So what do we know for sure? We know that. If you look at what is called liquidity, international liquidity, amount of money floating around in all the systems and all the economies in the world, it is starting to move up. Why? Well, China has a problem, too. They're going to be defaulting on their debt because they're having a huge, huge problem with real estate in China. And that's been 
basically smoldering for at least five years and maybe 10. And now it's, there's always a day to pay to Piper. And so what they want to do is they're going to start printing more of the yuan. And they're trying to enable themselves to get out of their problems that they have. And America's thinking about printing more stuff, too. So we want to get out of the problems we have. We, we effectively had a blip in inflation. We were going down on the inflation, and then we had a blip up, and now we're starting to go down again. When we had the bank crisis in Silicon Valley, remember that? Well, we guaranteed all those banks' deposits, which means we had to print a bunch of money to keep the, the, the cash flowing and keeping these things soluble. Just last week, I just shared with our staff, 64 new banks went out of business in the United States. We've had over 3,000 banks go out of business in the United States this last year. This is a big problem, and the, the government's aware of that. So one of the ways you solve that is put more money into the system. And that's where ultimately the inflation comes for. But you can pay that off. Well, if you have greater liquidity, then what's going to happen if you have great, greater liquidity? You're going to have inflation. So you want to accumulate assets that are what are known as hard assets, uh, assets that will appreciate with inflation, things like a home, things, you know, uh, what would I say? Uh, people buy gold and silver. I'm not recommending that. I'm just saying that's what they do. Those are hard assets. People see them as hard assets. I have some concerns about those because of the way that they're manipulated legally by the selling of futures contracts. And so gold probably should be up a lot more than it is, but the way it's being manipulated, it's being held down for different purposes. I don't want to get into all that, too. That's a whole other complicated subject. Uh, it, all these things are, in, are creating confusion amongst the guys that are supposed to be managing this, and that leaves the regular guy on the street confused about what the heck is going on in the world around me and how does this affect me. All I know, if you're the average guy, is prices went up a lot. And I know that they're coming down a little bit. I know gas has come down a little bit and all that stuff. And so maybe things are getting better, but I'm terrified what I see coming ahead. And I don't know how we're going to be paying for everything when I'm hearing that we're multiple trillion dollars in debt every single year and the debt is growing and the price to sustain the debt in other words to make your minimum payment on your credit card that's the same idea the government has to make their minimum payment that's pay the bond guys those that's going up to the point that we can't even cover it with all our tax receipts when it gets to there then what do you do and so that's what people are terrified are we on that track i'm not saying we're there now but are we on that track so these are all the things that the economy has to do with living your everyday life. It's a little bit scary. And then when you recognize that the president does not seem to have all of his IQ points uh, anymore, that makes it a little more scary as well. And then you have Congress people who, well, let's just say, aren't known for keeping their word very well. That also makes things scary. And so when you put all that together, there's a lot of confusion in the culture. There's a lot of concern about the future. And now you're seeing smash and grabs all over the country. This is adding to a sense of lack of safety in culture. You're seeing that uh, certain uh, three-letter agencies are cracking down on moms when they protest at school boards. Or if they're traditional conservative Catholics to practice a Catholic mass, they're being infiltrated. And uh, if you speak out about certain aspects of what's happening in government, you seem to uh, be categorized as some sort of domestic terrorist. All of these things are creating enormous tension in the culture. And at the root of it all is this unstable sense of, are we even, do we even have a healthy economy? 
because when I say economy, you think money, but it's more than money. It's the whole health of the culture is measured by the economy. And what do I mean by that? And this is what I kind of want to close with, and it's this. If I asked you this question, and I'm going to ask you it now, what part of your life is not touched by economics? Zero. Every single part of your life is impacted by economics. There's no place, no part of your life where economics doesn't touch it. Well, what about my spiritual life? Where your treasure is, there shall your heart be also. Oh, be faithful with your talents because you'll be rewarded with how you utilize them. Oh, I could go through dozens and dozens and dozens of verses in the Bible that talks about your money and how it should be utilized for God's glory. There's tons of that. And in a couple of weeks, we'll probably talk a little bit about it and misconceptions that Christians have about money. But let me just put it this way. Jesus talked about money 10 times more often than he talked about eternity. So money affects your spiritual life. What about your emotional life? The number one reason for divorce is financial in America today. Finances and arguments is what is at the root of it. Oh, so I guess my family and marriage is impacted. That's correct. And then how about the food you eat? <laughs> That's going to be impacted by economics. Every single thing that you do in your life is going to be hinged by economics, is going to be touched on it. If all these prices go up for, let's say, housing and food, which they have recently, and it looks like they might be turning down, like I mentioned, but they have recently, that means you have less money to take a vacation with your family. You have less money available to, I don't know, to buy a new pair of your favorite uh, skis so you can go skiing. You, you have less money available to go eat out at the restaurant. And so a lot of these things get curtailed. What are you going to replace them with if those are your hobbies, those are the ways that your family or you personally kind of blow off steam and recover and rejuvenate your life? You're, you're kind of left in a feeling pressured by that. And so if you don't know how to deal with economics, how to view economics, and how to manage your life in terms of economics, it's going to really impact you in an adverse way. But the good news is the Bible talks a whole lot about economics. And so that's what I'm looking forward to as in these next podcasts. And I just want to leave you with a verse that Jesus gave us. Remember, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. God bless. God bless.